Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Mosaic Life Podcast. Before we get started, I would like to ask you to say a very, very quick favor. If you enjoy the content the Mosaic Life Podcast puts out, it would go a long, long way if you could help me by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That helps the podcast reach more and more people just like yourself, as well as attract more and more interesting and thought-provoking guests, such as the two that I have today. You know, hopefully, if you take away any business lessons from this podcast, you will see how extremely valuable referrals are. My guests today were referred to me by Lisa Bond. In fact, I met Rob at one of Lisa's events last year in which both Rob and I took part in a mastermind uh, with her and some other extremely intelligent individuals in Columbus, Ohio. And so Rob and I have stayed connected ever since, and now being a great time for us to reconnect via the podcast, as he just opened up his very own addiction clinic called Basecamp Recovery Center. Both he and Brian are about three weeks in to this very, very noble and very important pursuit. Throughout this conversation, Brian, Rob, and I talk a lot about drugs and addiction and the havoc and agony it can cause both the addict as well as the addict's family, coworkers, friends. And as I went back and edited this episode, I realized that I'm getting into territory where I'm not even the least bit knowledgeable. And I have to remind myself that is the pursuit of this podcast. I want to be a conduit to not only learn more about the world for myself, but share that and ask poignant questions for you, the listener, to take in and digest and in turn, turn that into positivity throughout the world. And so learning about the very real consequences of the opioid crisis and the damage that it's causing across the country was a little bit uncomfortable for me. I grew up in a bubble, and I think that was by my parents' design. Of course, like any parent, you want to shelter your children from negativity and, and pain and suffering for as long as you possibly can. And to a certain extent, I still live in that bubble and so this conversation was a great opportunity for me to, I guess, open my eyes just a little bit more. And hopefully you take away that same, that same lesson. Rob himself grew up right here in Columbus. That's where he's opened Base Camp Recovery Center uh, in his old neighborhood, where it was exceptionally unlikely that those around him we're going to make it to college. It was a very blue-collar neighborhood. Uh, Rob himself was a first-generation college student and one of the few that actually made it out of his neighborhood to go on to college, uh, eventually making it to medical school and uh, where he trained in emergency medicine, uh, at which point he came back to Columbus and worked at Grant Medical Center. That's Columbus's busiest level one trauma center for the last 10 years. 
Just over a year ago, he began working on a project to give back to his childhood neighborhood and help with the opioid epidemic. It was out of a vision that he had. Base Camp Recovery Center was born. And on August 3rd, just three weeks ago from the air date of this episode, they opened their doors and began seeing patients and helping those who struggle with substance abuse disorder. Addiction is a very, very real disease. And if you feel like you are suffering and in need help, we are providing the resources you need to get that help, whether or not you are in Columbus or elsewhere, in the show notes. Please, please check those out. If you have questions or you need to speak with Rob or Brian, please call the phone number or reach out to them on any platform possible. There is a stigma surrounding mental health and addiction, and it's one that people like Rob and Brian are trying to help tear down. With that said, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Rob and Brian. Welcome to the Mosaic Life Podcast. Life is an art. Every moment, a picture painted in time. The color, texture, lighting, all context. The Mosaic Life vision is to cast a warm glow on your masterpiece, highlighting the struggle while showcasing the culmination of years of hard work. Join us for guided meditations, interviews with authors and leaders, and engaging conversation as we explore the depths of our consciousness. Welcome to the Mosaic Life Podcast. We're back with another week with another amazing conversation, and this one I'm extremely excited about. Um, I met Rob uh, through Lisa Bond. Uh, we we met at a, a, an event sometime last year, and we were reconnected recently. Rob, as well as uh, Brian, who is joining us today as well, recently opened up a, an addiction clinic right here in Columbus, Ohio. So, Rob, Brian, welcome to the Mosaic Life, po- Life Podcast. Thank you for joining me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you guys both have amazing stories, which I'm looking forward to jumping into. But first and foremost, so you, your, your clinic just opened, correct? Like within the, within the last month. August 3rd. So this is the end of our third week. That's great. How, how has the launch been for you? It's, it's going well. We, um, you know, we, uh, have been, uh, you know, steadily growing and, uh, you know, we're, we're providing uh, good services to uh, a uh, very high need area uh, of the city. Yeah, and I, I know we're going to dig very deep into it. But I mean, the Midwest in particular has just been it's just been pounded with with the opiate crisis. And, I, you know, as I mentioned, you know, as we got into this talk about, you know, bringing on to the podcast, you know, for me, addiction has never really been or I shouldn't say it, it has never been a part of my life. Um, it, it really hasn't. I haven't. I have never been addicted to anything. I haven't known anybody who's been addicted. So to me, it's just, you know, this this this. And this pandemic or this 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 problem that just exists outside of my sphere of, you know, reality. And so I what is it about the Midwest that has created such such a problem? Um, I'm not sure if it's uh, so much specifically the uh, the Midwest as it is a um, sort of uh, across the United States sort of thing. Um, 
I think that uh, over the, um, when we're really looking at the opiate epidemic, what we saw was that there were some really high prescribing rates from some physicians that were in the uh, Midwest. And because of those um, excess opiate prescriptions, it really uh, allowed a lot of people to become physically dependent yeah. uh, on opiates uh, that they were obtaining legally through a prescription. And um, it put a lot of opiates into the system. And then we sort of had a correction uh, from the regulatory bodies. Uh, and we really started to cut back on the amount of opiates that we were prescribing as physicians. And this really um, was sort of a double-edged sword because um, for one, it, it decreased the opiate prescription significantly, right. but at the same time, it caused a whole lot of people who then lost their prescriptions to have to look elsewhere for the opiates because now they were addicted, they were suffering really serious symptoms of withdrawal, they were feeling horrible. And the place that a lot of them turned was to heroin. Um, and so I think that that really has um, set up um, a lot of the, the the backdrop for the opiate epidemic that we're seeing today. Um, oh. And Trey, I don't know if you have read the book Dreamland. No, uh, by, no, I haven't. By, okay, by Sam Quinones, but he he documents this very well, and he talks about the intersection of uh, the um, the meds prescribed by the physicians and the and and kind of the taking away of that. Uh, with the influx of heroin uh, coming from Mexico. Okay. And he, he documents it very well how um, the drug trade changed in the United States kind of at the right time for there to be like a crossroads where we just had an explosion of, of you know, uh, of, um, uh, of chemical dependence and, uh, and opiate abuse. Um, the change, and I won't get too far into this, just because I don't, I, I don't. It's not it's certainly not my expertise, but from what I understand uh, from reading the book, is that um, it used to be that the drug cartels controlled things with, like, and you know, kind of ruled with an iron fist. And, right. Uh, you know, if you if you weren't in, involved with them, then you know, or you know, they were going to shut you down or take you out. And what happened was there was an influx of kind of these uh, like small business. Uh, uh, drug dealers that were kind of like these families and they instead of going to Chicago and New York City and the bigger city they, they actually would find small towns and they would stay under the radar they didn't carry guns they didn't carry you know they they did everything kind of uh in a way that if they got caught it would be a minor offense and then yeah. you know um so in in, in, in Sam documents the, this whole process very well so if you get a chance to read Dreamland absolutely uh, or if you want more about that process um it's it's a great read and it he, he and he talks a lot about the state of Ohio in there. And okay. He's he's not from Ohio. So he lives in LA, um, but um, had to to do the right research, uh, you know, and uh, to, for the historical context, it, it kind of led him to some of these small towns, Portsmouth, Ohio, and some other towns that you know. It's actually, being from Ohio and reading this is kind of a little bit shocking. You know, when you go through, it, you're like, wow, it, this is this is really you know really close for us. So. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. And b before we, you know, get too deep into the conversation, um, Rob, Brian, I would love to hear. I mean, what brought you down this road onto this this journey of helping others overcome this this disease, the addiction? What what led you to opening up the the base camp recovery center? 
I'll speak first on that. You know, for me, I, you know, I spent the last 10 years as an ER doc, uh, the level one trauma center here in Columbus, uh, Grant Medical Center, um, you know, worked at multiple ERs around town that our group served, but uh, towards the end of my career, I was only at Grant. And so um, really got to witness the, the, um, the fallout from uh, the opioid epidemic firsthand. Um, about uh, two, maybe 2018, uh, so just about two years ago, um, I read an article about uh, or, um, what they were doing at Yale to help curb uh, the, the opioid crisis. Um, and it looked like, you know, from what I was reading, they were writing for prescriptions of uh, Suboxone and other withdrawal medications out of the ER, and they would refer them to a Yale-associated uh, addiction clinic. Right. So I kept thinking, you know, we really need that here. Um, I'm seeing how this is kind of ravishing our communities, and and specifically the community that I'm that I grew up um, here in Columbus on the west side uh, of town, an area called the Hilltop. Um, but also where we put the clinic is right adjacent to that in in, in Franklinton. Um, I you know I um, I kind of witnessed that firsthand, and so I began to talk to some. Uh, leaders in the hospital and try to get some traction on something in the hospital, um, but they're really just, I couldn't get something going. And I, so I, I began writing for prescriptions out of the ER and said, hey, you need to follow up with a clinic. And they would come back in two weeks and they'd say, you know, it's a five-week wait or a six-week wait to get in somewhere that I, I don't know where to go. And so it just started to become clear to me that we needed more of these clinics and there just wasn't enough resources for the people that needed it. And um, so um, talked to several people, um, thought about it for a long time, got closer and closer to doing this. Uh, you know, I get 50% of the way there, 70%, 80%. I mean, I think I stayed at 97% of the way there for many, many months. Um, but it's, it's a big difference between 97% of the way there and 100% yeah. there. I sat down, I was introduced to Brian uh, last summer um, and we exchanged some emails, some phone calls and then eventually sat down. We sat down at a Whole Foods, had some coffee. Um, we always laugh now because we, we were sitting outside this courtyard and I don't know what they had going on there because it, it doesn't make sense even now when I think about it because we were so engrossed in conversation, but right. these bubbles, were like bubbles flying by us. We're just, we always <laughs> laugh about these bubbles that were like, I don't know, some bubble machine. Um, but we were just like, just kind of flying in our faces, but yeah. we're just having like really serious conversation. What do we do? How can we do this? And uh, you know, Brian had been doing this for about three years at that point. And once I talked to Brian, like I knew that it was something that I was going to do. I, I, I walked away from there a hundred percent motivated and knew that I was going to build a clinic. Now I didn't know Brian was going to come on board at the time right. that kind of came later, but I knew that I was going to push forward. And Brian said, Hey, whatever you do, I'd be willing to, help you out and serve as a resource and, you know, cause we, we definitely need this. So um, that's kind of on my side, how we came together and I'll let, I'll let Brian tell sort of his side. Yes, please. Um, so for me, um, I really uh, didn't have much um, interaction with, uh, with the field of addiction until uh, I began to struggle with my own addiction. Um, so um, in undergrad, uh, my alcohol use uh, greatly increased, and then um, I began to also use other substances like stimulants, like Adderall, to study. Uh, I went through medical school, and I had some 
things happened to where a psychiatrist started prescribing me benzodiazepines like your Xanax or Valium. And so I was sort of, you know, drinking some, taking these medicines at nighttime, uh, also on death stimulant type medications. And um, as I pursued through my career in medical school, I was successful. Um, and uh, it wasn't until about uh, my fourth year of medical school that um, uh, I, I really started to notice that I was having cravings, that I was starting to have uh, some negative symptoms when I wasn't taking those medicines. Right. Um, I proceeded through uh, uh, into a very successful residency in emergency medicine here in Columbus. Um, and uh, I was doing very well in residency, um, but it began to be noticed by my program director that it seemed like um, I was very depressed, that uh, my outlook on things was not, uh, was not as positive, and that it really seemed like I was regressing rather than um, in residency, you're supposed to be uh, making this forward progress the whole time, and it seemed like all of a sudden I was regressing. Um, and in reality, what was really going on was that my drug use was increasing. Yeah. And um, unfortunately, um, my drug use took me to a point to where um, I was taking medications from a patient. And uh, uh, in the process of doing that, I was uh, a nurse noticed, um, and uh, I was caught doing that. I admitted it and uh, went to treatment. And uh, because of that uh, situation, I did receive some consequences, which I look as to be very beneficial at this Absolutely. point because I don't think without them that I would have um, succeeded and be to where I am right now. But uh, I did end up losing sort of my career at that point in time. I was uh, terminated from the hospital system where I was at. Uh, my medical license was uh, temporarily revoked. Um, and uh, I had to leave the, my home, um, move back in with my parents, go to inpatient treatment. Um, and then I did actually receive a felony uh, for uh, that as well. So that really uh, knocked my chances out of uh, employment and things for a while. So I went to treatment and um, once leaving, once I left treatment, um, I sort of had to start again from the ground up. Um, I started working as a telemarketer um, and uh, I did that for a while until I was actually fired because they found out about my felony. Wow. <laughs> um, so I got terminated from that job. Uh, so I started like selling things on eBay yeah. and uh, making making money any way that I could, literally flipping houses. And um, I stayed sober. I went to a ton of AA, NA meetings. Um, I was being drug tested by the state medical board. And after um, I did this for a period of a few years, uh, I did um, earn the right to have my medical license back. And um, I was also doing some lectures, doing outreach to uh, the, med the medical schools in Ohio and residencies in Ohio, tell them about the Physicians Health Program, which is a confidential program where physicians, nurses, professionals can call in and get treatment confidentially. Yeah. And um, a lot of people didn't know about it. So I was out spreading the word about that. And one of the things that is really cool about it is that the physician success rate for recovery is like 80 some percent. That's great, so, yeah. Yeah, I had this uh, small business owner um, who was kind of doing the same thing as Rob, really wanting to help out in the community, wanted to start up a new business. And they were like, well, if um, we're going to do this, I want to do it with really high quality care. 
And so um, they sort of looked at the model that the physician's health program was using because it was so successful. And they were like, how can we bring that sort of success to patients who may never have the resources that a physician or attorney or someone would have? Yeah. Um, so that's sort of how I got recruited to this business um, and started uh, a clinic here on the south side of Columbus uh, as medical director and sort of built it from the ground up. Uh, ironically, it's actually, as um, Rob mentioned, uh, the business um, was also down in Portsmouth uh, in the Dreamland book. It's actually mentioned, and I work with several people who were in the Dreamland book and met Sam. Um, and so we sort of re, uh, rehabbed that facility down there as well and um, created a really high quality uh, treatment facility in both locations that we were providing some really good care. I learned a lot during that process. And then that's sort of when Rob approached me and um, all the things sort of lined up. And uh, that's how I have sort of come to where I am today. Yeah, that's, uh, that's first of all, amazing that you were able to come so far from, you know, what you may or may not, and correct me if I'm wrong, you know, hit rock bottom and coming, picking yourself back up and, you know, finding the success that, that you have is, is just incredible. And so, you know, one point that I'm curious about, there's a book called Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker, phenomenal book. And he talks a lot about, you know, careers, especially in the medical field, working 16, 18 hour days, which seems to perpetuate, you know, drug use or stimulants to, you know, keep you awake and, 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 and in a place where you're able to, you know, work and stay focused. And so I'm just curious, you know, schooling and, and work, especially in the metal field, does that perpetuate drug use? Does it encourage it to make sure that you stay in a place where you can focus and, 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 you know, be your best self? I, I, that's, I know that's a wrong way of putting, cause I know you're not your best self when you're on drugs, but I guess, does that sort of industry perpetuate drug use just so you can stay, stay alert? I would say, you know, I would say no. Okay. I mean, I, I, and I want to be as candid as I can about this. I, I think that if you look across professions, there are some professions that have higher rates of um, addiction than others. Um, and, uh, and I think that the, the question will always be, did these folks self-select into that area? So right. like, let me give you an example. When I applied for um, malpractice insurance, um, I went out and I bought, you know, the best package that I could find for malpractice. Sure. And it was the own occupation. You had to have, you know, you, it was a very specific insurance and for physicians. And so uh, one of the things I remember reading through this, and this was years, this, you know, 10, 11 years ago when I, when I filled this out. Um, but I remember reading through and they said, we will cover mental health or substance abuse for all professions except for anesthesia and emergency medicine. And so the question is, well, why? You know, and I was emergency medicine physician. I'm like, well, what, what, that's kind of strange. And then as you look at it, you start to realize that, well, there is a higher rate of um, addiction in, in anesthesia, which I think probably because they have access to really good drugs um, and they carry on a box with drugs, they have access to it all the time. And so 
Um, I think that probably is one of the reasons for anesthesia and emergency medicine is probably more alcohol. Um, but I think that people that are thrill seekers at heart uh, go into emergency medicine and are kind of that, you know, work hard, play hard type and, right. and, and play hard outside of work anyway. So it does kind of lead to that. It's kind of a cultural thing. And if you are going through med school and you you do a rotation on that, that service and you're hanging out with these folks that are that way, you're going to connect with them and say, yeah, I really like the people here and I like what they're doing. I enjoy the field. And, and then you kind of gravitate towards that. Just like as if you, you know, someone that's really like, you know, uh, someone may gravitate towards peds because they like, you know, they really like being around kids. So I don't know, you know, it's kind of one of those, what came first, the chicken or the egg, right. you know, because it's like, did they, did they self-select into anesthesia because they knew they'd be close to drugs or is the behavior of them be carrying around a box of drugs all day long? Does that lead towards their use? And I think that you probably would be, you know, be hard pressed to find what, you know, what came first. Right. No, absolutely. And so with that, let's, let's talk a little bit more about, you know, base camp and how the recovery process looks and that, that, that system that uh, you're putting into place uh, for your clinic. When somebody comes in, uh, and they, they have an issue, they, they know this. What does that look like from the very moment that they, they, they process, you know, the, the intake form or whatever it is? How, how does that treatment look? So when they uh, come to base camp, typically the, the first thing that we're going to focus on uh, would be the illicit substances that they're using, typically on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, and we primarily want to, um, in, in an opiate addiction, we want to treat that their, their withdrawal from the opiates because it, it's so uncomfortable that the likelihood that they will just stop using and then not use again is, is almost like 0% yeah. because it's such an uncomfortable feeling. Um, and they're so sick from that, that what we like to do is we like to try and get a hold of those withdrawal symptoms right away so that they can be comfortable. Um, in doing that, that allows us to really do an in-depth uh, assessment and figure out all of the uh, aspects of life that we're going to address in treatment. Um, same thing for uh, an alcoholic. Uh, we have to be a little bit more careful because their withdrawal symptoms can be really, really dangerous. So they may need detox at a, at a hospital type system for a few days. But they come in, we address their withdrawal symptoms, we get them comfortable. And from that point on, it's really a, a, a process of education, relearning coping mechanisms, um, developing sober support networks, and coming to the understanding and respect that it is a uh, disease that affects the brain. And I think that's the most important thing that people will learn in treatment is that uh, it's a disease that affects the brain and we use the brain to think all day long every day. Right. So our thinking is compromised because of this disease. And because of that, we really have to learn to rely on other people and ask for help rather than relying on our own brain to make those decisions because we don't know when it's leading us astray. And that's really one of the big focuses um, about uh, our, our treatment program is that uh, patients learn um, ways to protect their sobriety, essentially. Um, in addition, 
um, as they advance a little bit further. And now we're not so much focusing on the uh, specific illicit drug or the withdrawal symptoms. Now it's really about this spiritual transformation. And what I refer, when I talk about a spiritual transformation would be um, a quality relationship that you redevelop with yourself, others, and your higher powers that you learn about. Um, one of the things about addiction that I feel we really um, have to have a horrible relationship with ourselves if we're going to poison ourselves every single day. And I think that um, one of the main things that we focus on is that rebuilding, that re-understanding, um, and uh, learning to love ourselves again. Absolutely. Um, I think that's where um, uh, the recovery process really begins. Yeah, and you really, yeah, you that that, that when you said spiritual, I, I've got I, you know prior to this conversation, I've, I've got that written down and and starred because I, I certainly wanted to bring that up. And of course, people can find or refund religion, but I'm I I, I am curious on how much introspection uh you you try to instill in people especially through meditation uh robin rob you and i have had a couple conversations especially leading up to this one about uh not only uh meditation and uh that that inward practice but stoicism as well which is a fascinating topic a fascinating philosophy so i i i am curious you know can you delve into a little bit more the the spiritual aspects of of the recovery process that uh, you you try to help people with well, um, you know, you recommended a book for me to read. Yes. Uh, when we last week. Well, I've read it. So you, you recommended uh, Ego is the Enemy, right? Uh, yeah. Tim Hamilton, is that right? Uh, no, uh, Ryan Holiday. Ryan Holiday, that's it. Sorry about that. That's all right. So, uh, so I, I read it, and it was amazing to me because all through his book there, there's references to 12-step. And I don't know if you recognize that when you were, or you even might not even realize that. Um, but there's a lot of references to 12 step. There's just things that he said. I thought, ah, that's kind of, that sounds like 12 step. So I listened to the epilogues. I, I listened to a lot of books on audible. Yeah. So I listened to the, um, and at the end he, he had, there's an epilogue and he kind of is going, he, I think it looks like he's doing a podcast himself. And he mentions that he was at, you know, workaholics anonymous. And I was like, there it is. That's where he learned, you know, that, that sort of that lingo that is common in, in 12 step. Um, but it is a lot of self-reflection. You know, the 12, if you look at the, the 12 steps of recovery, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of like, um, you know, the first, it's not the first uh, step is not, you know, admitting you have a problem, you know, people always say that, but it's really like, it's really recognizing that your life is unmanageable. Right. Um, and then, so the recognition of that is starts the process. And then it's, it's, it's like this, I can't control this. Um, this higher power of mine can. I'm going to let him. So that's kind of the start of it. And it's it's one of those. The higher power in twelve step is not necessarily God. Right. It actually can be anything. It can be the group. Um, it can be. You know, I've heard uh, different references like. Uh, you know, go outside and pick up a rock and, you know, and, and, and if you can pick it up, great, throw that rock, pick another rock, pick a bigger rock up, uh, keep picking up rocks until you pick one so big that you can't pick up. Well, that one's more powerful than you. So that rock can be higher power. So it's really kind of thinking outside yourself is really the key. And then 
then taking that and then taking another step looking inward uh, and uh, dealing with our defects, right? So yeah. we all have certain character defects that we carry around with us. And so then part of that 12 steps is, is going back. Once you decide that you're going to allow this higher power to kind of, you know, be a reference point for you, then looking introspectively at your life and how you can kind of clean up those things that are, that have may have led you down, uh, you know, a bad path. So, um, stoicism, I'm trying to think how I can tie this back in for you. What I, what I love about stoicism is that it really forces you to recognize that you don't have control of the world around you. You have control of yourself, of your emotions, of the actions you take. And once you realize that, you can be free to move about the world and not have okay. anxiety or, or unhappiness or this sense of, of guilt or discomfort because you understand that you are in control of your own life and you, whatever happens around you, that is outside of your control. And that's, that's what I really, really love about that. I know that's a very dumbed down version of the philosophy, but through it's it. Serenity, it's a serenity prayer. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's a serenity prayer. So, which, you know, is, is very much uh, recovery. I mean, that's, that's at the heart of it, the serenity prayer. So very connected to that, those ideas of stoicism. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, you know, I, I, uh, Rob, I, I may have mentioned as well, I think, uh, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Uh, that was kind of his journal throughout his life uh, as to how he should live. And I would recommend that to anybody. It's just it's a very distilled uh, kind of, you can call it a Bible of Stoicism if you want to. It, it's probably one of the most renowned works uh, by a Stoic, but it it is a, a very, very good book. I uh, just kind of laying out the the ideals and philosophies of, of what a stoic life looks like. Um, so in regard to drugs, I mean, that, that is such a broad term. And, you know, alcohol obviously is a, a very strong drug. And, you know, as we move into 2020, we have the the legalization of marijuana. I don't want to say sweeping the nation. It's been a very long process. But how how does that affect other i mean let's just talk about marijuana for for a moment and to me again being an outsider seems that marijuana could help others who have have succumbed to addiction of opiates because it is again correct me because this is a very ignorant statement in in my own mind you know something that is much less addictive to help quell pain seems like it be could be a better uh, solution than you know prescribing opiates i mean correct me just please feel free to correct me and let me know how the legalization of that substance is affecting your industry um so marijuana is um people with drug addiction are not addicted to a drug um they are addicted to dopamine sure and um, the reason why this happens, some people respond to substances in a way that is different than other people. Those people can become drug addicts because um, when they take an addictive substance, they get this rush of dopamine that a non-addict does not receive. Like your person who gets a prescription for a Percocet, 
Uh, they take the the Percocet and they're like, oh my God, it made me sick. I don't like it. I right. dumped them all down the toilet. I'm never going to do that. Well, then you have a person who has this genetic predisposition to be a drug addict and they take a Percocet and it is amazing. It is the it is completely different experience. And so we have to be very, very careful when we're looking at marijuana because it is absolutely an addictive substance. Um I see people who lose their homes, lose their families, lose their kids. They go through significant uncomfortable withdrawal from it. And it is in, in no way, shape or form, whether it is legal or illegal, um, beneficial to a person who has this predisposition to addiction. Um, and so that's sort of the way that I, I view marijuana. Um, People with drug addiction or alcoholism should avoid all mood-altering substances altogether. Does that mean that there are other people who can't um, recreationally use marijuana? No. There are going to be people just that can recreationally use alcohol as well. Right. But substituting one addiction for another addiction um, ultimately just leads back to the, the primary drug of choice. Uh, and so marijuana as a Marijuana is a pain medication. Um, if the person is predisposed to a drug addiction, it's gonna it's going to result in addiction, yeah. just like it would. And there are there are fantastic other medications out there that work great for pain. Uh, we've come a long way with the use of injections, uh, ultrasound guided injections, and things like that. There are so many non addictive pain opportunities out there that it really it really um, I think we're selling ourselves short if we go ahead and throw another addictive substance in there when we could, there's so many other non-addictive substances. Absolutely. And in regard to genetic predisposition to, you know, being addicted to substances, what do we know about that? I mean, is there, uh, is there a, 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 just a, a gene switch that, you know, some people have it, some people don't. How much do we know about that and how close are we to hopefully finding a way to... <sighs> I don't want to say cure it, but, you know, understanding better who is going to be addicted to certain substances and who is not. So we have we have some fantastic research that deals with that deals with alcohol. Um, and what uh, what this research has really shown is that there are really two um, uh, factors that primarily affect whether a person will have an alcohol use disorder later in life. And those two factors would be, number one, a genetic predisposition. So, uh a family member, mom, dad, sister, brother, um, who has already an alcohol dis use disorder, and then the age at which they come in contact with uh, a um, substance. So the earlier in life that they encounter drugs or alcohol, the greater likelihood that later in life they will have an alcohol use disorder or a substance use disorder. Here's where I see the problem with that. Um, we did these studies and genetic predisposition played a huge role. But right now there are a lot of drugs out there that I don't think fit that mold because you have a person who maybe takes um, alcohol who doesn't have a genetic predisposition and they just never really develop the tolerance. They never really um, develop, they can't even drink enough that they really sort of uh, become an alcoholic. Yeah. But I feel that a person who's injected with heroin for, you know, two or three weeks 
whether they have a genetic predisposition or not, I feel as though they're going to have a physical dependence upon heroin because the intensity of that drug is so strong that it sort of blows through the genetic predisposition. Yeah. There's not literature on that right now, but it is very concerning to me because that is what I'm seeing is that those drugs are so intense, especially like methamphetamine, uh, heroin, fentanyl, um, that these medications or drugs are so strong, so intense, that I'm really wondering if genetic predisposition is sort of a thing of the past, which, which is scary and sad. Yeah, absolutely. And so in regard to that research, you, sa you said there's not a whole lot of that going on right now, or is that is that something that, I mean, is that something that y you plan on taking on? It sounds like it's extremely important to, to have that understanding. Uh, it's not something that I'm prepared to take on right now. I think the field needs good treatment first. Yeah. Um, sure that there's, there's people out there who would uh, be willing to work on that. Uh, unfortunately, drug addicts, especially ones taking methamphetamine and yeah. uh, heroin IV, are not necessarily perfect research subjects. Sure. Uh, but um, right now, really, the the saddest thing about the the state of addiction medicine right now is just how poor, poorly set up we as a nation and we as a medical community are at actually treating addiction. I mean, it, it's embarrassingly bad. And that's where I've sort of, and Rob as well, we've really set our focuses that we want to do it and we want to do it so well that hopefully we can set a standard that other people will want to emulate. Yeah. Um, and so how, I mean, how can it be better? What's, what are your goals with, with, with Basecamp Recovery Center? Uh, I know there's such a, a stigma around mental health and, and, and addiction. And what I mean, what tools do you plan on putting in front of people who need these resources because they're just not pre being provided anywhere else? So I think, you know, what we often talk about is that uh, what kind of makes us different and the way we think about this is that we offer a end-to-end -end suite of services needed to get someone through the process of, um, uh, of uh, coming off the medications into a state of, of recovery. So not just abstaining, but into a, to a, a really you know, solid ground where they can kind of live a life that's, that's you know, worth living, right? So unfortunately right now, uh, in most areas, you, you've got what you have is that, you know, you may have someone that writes for the medicines like a Suboxone or Vivitrol over here on, uh, you know, one location. Then that same patient, they are going to a counseling center over here uh, to see their, you know, their counselor. Then they have a case manager that's over here. And you're talking about someone that's like, if they they really run, run hard at this, they've probably suffered tons of consequences, maybe living on the street, probably don't have transportation. And now they got to get to all three locations uh, and what, have a job or whatever. And, and, and so it's, it, they're not set up for success. And yeah. so what we've done here at Basecamp is uh, we have, uh, you know, they walk in the door, they see a physician. We have, we have three separate teams that work with them. We have the medical team that sees them on a regular basis several times a week. They have, they're going to group counseling, so they're plugged in with other people that are doing this, uh, other uh, uh, other patients that are learning and growing and are at different stages in their and in, in their recovery and their process, um, and they're doing the group counseling. They're doing individual counseling. They're able to talk with their individual counselor about life stressors, 
adverse childhood events, trauma in their life. And we believe that the, the counseling piece is really the centerpiece and is really the life change where the life changing stuff happens. The miracles happen in the counseling piece. But we also provide another side, the case management, which is helping them find housing, helping them find a, a job with a felony, navigating the court system, helping get, get their kids back. So it's really bookend to bookend services. And we have we have vans where we'll go pick someone up. If they don't have transportation, we'll go get them. That's so we're, we're really set them up for success by uh, providing transportation to a location where they get all the services they need. Um, and so I think, you know, that's what we need to see across the nation. We need to see more places like this created where it's, it sort of has everything they need. We're setting them up for, for success from the moment they walk in the door. That's, that's fantastic. And in regard to that, the, to, in regard to the counseling, I want to dive in a, a little bit more deeply. I, I'm sure the reasons for starting to use are vast. Uh, if it's possible to, just to kind of distill some of these reasons into themes, can you, is it, can you kind of start to dig into why people start to use certain types of drugs, whether they be opiates, alcohol? I mean, you mentioned earlier, thrill-seeking behavior. People will use drugs to, to find that, that, that high, that excitement. Do people, I mean, do people start using drugs because they want to be happier? Please, you know, what, what, whatever themes you can, you can kind of break into there, I'm, I'm curious about. So I, to be honest, I don't, I don't really think that there's a theme. Um, I think that a lot of people start using, from what I can see is most, most patients um, seem to encounter some sort of drug around the ages of 12 to 13. And some people are going to have that uh, aha moment, right. um, that dopamine surge that uh, with continued use will ultimately result in a substance use disorder. Then there's a handful of other people um, who use in the exact same group, the exact same group of friends. They use the exact same way, and they ultimately do not de develop a, a substance use disorder. And I think that's sort of where that genetic predisposition lies. Absolutely. But also, I think, um, too, that it's actually um, the public's perception and lack of understanding a process that makes no sense because really it, it, it's irrational behavior when we look at drug drug addicts and alcoholics and we see them doing things that ultimately harm themselves over and over and over again. Yeah. And I think it's sort of human nature to look at that and try and figure out a reason that makes sense for that to be happening. Right. Um, and a lot of things that we then start, we start creating reasons for why it, we try to make sense of it and we create reasons for them. Like, well, it's because they're depression. If they, if they didn't have that depression, they wouldn't, they wouldn't need to drink. And that makes sense to a person sure. or it's because they had childhood trauma that they use. And that sort of makes sense to someone. But in reality, there are lots of people with depression and childhood trauma who don't use drugs and alcohol. Yeah. It's, does this person have that predisposition or not? And if they do, they're very, very likely to suffer from the disease of substance use disorder. So I know this is an extremely loaded question, but, you know, what, 
what is the fix? Is I mean, is there a fix? I mean, is it are, are we out here blaming, you know, Purdue Pharmaceutical for, you know, creating these drugs or do we need to test individuals for this genetic predisposition prior to subscribing them anything? I mean, I know right now we ca- we we were using a sledgehammer when we need to be using, you know, uh, the computer precision models to really pinpoint what it is the problem is with a patient what what can we do to 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 fix this i mean it's it's got to be systemic right i mean is there anything that can be done right now that can start to solve this problem so i think you know there there is no cure right now so there's a lot of research a lot of money being directed at research but there is there is no cure and so i think you know some perspective that may be worth keeping in mind is that they're, they're estimated that 20 million people um, have substance, substance use disorder in the United States. For, so to give you a perspective on that, there are 23 million people that have diabetes. So we have eight, almost eight equivalent numbers of diabetes and substance use disorder. Only 12% of patients with substance use disorder are receiving treatment right now. 88% are not. We don't have the resources to treat the problem, and we and, and it's become okay for us to ignore this. You know, I don't know if the idea is that they'll all die off. I don't know. I don't know what the I don't know what it is, but it's just you know, there's just not enough focus and education on what's actually happening. You know, Brian talked a little bit about the dopamine, right? So you know, uh, well, why do they do the things they do? Well, because their brain has been reprogrammed to believe that this substance that gives them the dopamine surge is what they need to live. And so all the things that evolutionary-wise that you thought or that, that you get dopamine from, an average person gets dopamine from uh, going exercising or seeing a beautiful sunset or spending time with someone they care about, um, you know, spending time with community, working hard, accomplishing a goal, gives you a little dopamine surge. Their dopamine system is broken. And so they can't get enough dopamine from that experience. So to, to have it, it doesn't even blip on their radar. So their brain, and so that's programmed because it's healthy things that give you a dopamine surge and continue and, and it encourages you to do more of that. Yeah. But someone that's addicted, they, they, are, they need to get their dopamine from the drug. So they keep going back to the drugs. They keep doing all this crazy behavior to go back to the drug. And from the outside, we just think they're making bad choices or there's some other, you know, some other idea there. Oh, they, you can't help them. They don't. And so um, I think that really what needs to shift is sort of public opinion. Um, and then we need additional resources in the community for folks that are struggling with addiction. And there is, you know, I, I worked in the hospital. There is real discrimination against addicts in the hospital. Yeah. You know, and I don't mean to, it just, I think just because of lack of understanding, they're like, well, we keep, we try to do something for them, but they just keep putting a needle in their arm, you know? And it's like, they, there's not, you know, the, the empathy is not there because there's no understanding. And, and how do so, you, how do you change that? I mean, why? I think, I think education is key. I okay. really do. I think public, uh, you know, I, you know, um, education is key. It's, it's the, the, there's so much shame in addiction. You know, you'll never hear about somebody's 
son or daughter that's struggling with addiction until it's too late. Yeah. Because though there's so much, there's denial attached to that they're going through a phase or there's something else that's, and they, they, they don't want to, you know, ruin their chances to get into college or they don't, they're on the, they're on the, uh, the football team and they're going to get a scholarship and we don't want to ruin their chances of getting a scholarship by all of a sudden t- saying that they have a pro- you know, a problem with substance, substances. Right. So it's, it's everything. It, this is a very hidden disease. It's swept under the rug until it's, until it's too late. It's not it's, a problem it, until it is. Yeah, that's right. And so, so we need better education out there, um, you know, about, uh, you know, what this disease looks like, even in the early stages. Mm-hmm. And, and what does this look like when, you know, what is early, if you're, if, if you end up in the hospital because of a drinking episode, that's not normal, right. you know? Right. You get it by, that's not normal. That's a, those are red flags, you know? If you ruin a relationship because it's not, if there's, there's certain red flags along the way uh, that people have, um, but, it's you know, and especially with something like alcohol, where it's so accepted, or even marijuana now, where it's becoming more accepted, those things are easy to just kind of like. It's easy to normalize them. You want things to be normal in your life, so you you normalize things. We all do this. Um, we see something that's not normal, and we just try to make it normal. Yeah. Try to figure out a way to make it normal. So. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, that the public perception obviously is extremely important. And just thinking back to as a child, um, you're 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 taught from, from as soon as you start to have you know your own perception of self that alcohol is is bad. You should you should not drink alcohol until you're 21. That are that arbitrary line in the sand and does that just mean you know and expanding that conversation from alcohol and drugs are bad to really talking about what type types of drugs, you know, right now we're in the middle of, of an opiate, a huge opiate crisis. Do, do parents need to talk with their kids about opiates specifically? How do you have that conversation with somebody from a young age so they can instill that in themselves? I, you know, I'll, I'll let Brian answer this as well, but for me, I think it's, it's less to do with the substance and more to do with the behavior associated with the substance use. Yeah. Because again, some people are going to use and be and be safe. But when you have somebody in there and their behavior change, I mean, think about this trait. We we all had that friend in college that you know you had to babysit when they drank, right? Yep. yep. They, 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 that one guy that is they drank and it took them or a girl and they, when they drank it took them to some somewhere no one else was going. Yeah. Everybody was ready to shut it down for the night, and this person was like just getting started. Yeah, and you had they needed someone to babysit them, right? They were like you were always like kind of caring, you know, kind of taking care of them. That's kind of like your prototype, you know, person that's going to struggle with this disease later. They're getting that dopamine surge that no one else is getting. Does that make it? Does it make it a little bit more clear? Yeah. Or like, a, like, does that kind of give you a, a better picture? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I, Brian, I would love to hear your perspective on that as well. Yeah, I think, um, too, as, as Rob mentioned, I think um, that what will change is certainly a lot of education about um, some of the stigmas and how drug addiction does not have to be this person who is the town drunk who's living under a bridge, yeah. and that's that's a drug addict or an alcoholic right there, but more of someone who 
oh my gosh, I got this prescription for Percocet um, and I really liked taking it. Um, you know, being able to recognize and having the education for that person to say, you know what, I think I'm at risk for a drug addiction. Um, and it's okay that I have this disease if I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm going to tell someone about it. And I feel comfortable telling someone about it so that I can get treatment there when it's so much easier to treat the disease rather than them showing up 25 years later walking in our clinic. Now they're putting a needle in their arm with heroin and methamphetamine when they can get it. And now is when they're like, oh, now I'm a drug addict at that point in time. When so much earlier along and so, so much less disease burden and how many years of happy life could have been restored to them. Um, if they didn't have to go through all those struggles. Yeah, in my mind, I, I find myself struggling wanting to place blame somewhere, whether it's, you know, as mentioned, uh, Purdue or Big Pharma just in general, or the doctor subscribing these opiates to, to individuals who may or may not be predisposed to, to addiction, or even the individuals, which I, which I, I wouldn't even begin to blame because... I, I wonder if people have the self-awareness, and you know this much better than I do, to say, hey, that felt really good to take that. I probably shouldn't take any more because I'm at risk for addiction. I mean, is yeah. it, 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 to me, while I want to place blame, it feels wrong to do so. And so, I mean, should 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 these strong opiates even be created do they serve are they serving a purpose or is it just serving to to, to pad the pockets of you know CEOs? I, I don't know. That's a difficult question. That is a tough question because yeah. I think at the end of the day, like you know, I don't I don't know what purpose it serves to blame anyone, right? You know, and right. honestly, like you like I can if you read, I, I won't go into it because it you know I I think if someone's really interested, they can read Dreamland to, to know more. But I think they do a great job with the physicians. I, in fact, I got like five chapters into that book, and when I read the way Sam described the physician uh, uh, prescribing habits. I knew that he had done a ton of research because yeah. you would never hear a layman talk about the what talk about the way he did. Right. And there was, you know, because a lot of people want to say that well, the physicians, you know, have overprescribed. But in a lot of ways, the prescript, the the they were they were kind of led down that path mm-hmm. yeah. um, by some regulatory things where it was like pain is the sixth vital sign, and then there's these you know press gainy scores at the hospital where it's you know you got to keep your press gainy scores high or the hospital will send you a letter telling you, you got, you know, you, you, you got it. The patients have to be satisfied or they're going to go. So there was like this whole, there's a, a like a culmination of events that happened yeah. and he really describes that very well. And so, you know, you, there's this pressure to prescribe pain and you, you know, you go into medicine, you want to help people and you want to make them mm-hmm. feel better. And so like you, you, you've got the tools to, to take away their pain and you're not hearing a lot of, you know, Hey, it's, uh, this could be a risk. So you, to so your, you, you know, you kind of, end up in this in this pattern where you your prescribing habits may be you know leading leading the way but i don't know that physicians inherently were intending to do that sure i I guess he describes that very well okay that's that's great to know and i will i will certainly link uh i don't know a lot of pharma i'd love to blame them and their research and everything but i i certainly don't know all they did as well you know it makes it easy for me oh yeah they they were they're lying in their pockets and it, it, it makes them an easy target. Yeah. I just don't, well, you know, um, unless you get dig into, uh, you know, some litigation and really get 
you know, get down the road on that. I don't know how, I don't know all the details of how that unfolded. So. Yeah. And I, and I'm sure like everything in life that this story is much more complicated than it seems at the surface. And, uh, you know, of course there are people in, in real pain who otherwise, you know, there would be no, no necessity for, for pain medication. So that's, eh, it's extremely difficult as you, as you mentioned. And so, you know, I'm, I'm curious when somebody feels like they, they are at risk of addiction or they are having the, the self-realization that they are addicted and they need help. What, what, what steps and tools and resources, you know, whether or not they're here locally and they can, they can come to your clinic or whether or not they're, they're national or international, what, what's the first step in that process in getting help? I, I would say the, the first step would be to reach out to, um, an addiction provider probably that is um, registered with like the substance abuse, uh, abuse and mental health um, organizations or the American Society of Addiction Medicine, because sadly, um, a lot of physicians aren't up to date um, with the treatment of addiction. And, I, and I'm not sure that that's always the best um, first place to go. And sadly, it's not even really, even our, our great hospital systems. Um, if you walk into the emergency room right now and say that you need treatment, there's a good chance you're not even gonna receive a diagnosis of substance use disorder. And there's a very good chance you're not gonna receive any treatment or where to go get treatment. Yeah. Um, so that's sad. Um, so I guess, I guess the people that I feel um, who are in the know and who will likely make sure that you get the right treatment are the group of people who are really focused around the American Society of Addiction Medicine and SAMHSA, the other organizations, which and, is few, sadly. Yeah, and that's if if, if you know if if they don't have resources immediately available. I mean, what what's are there people that? say somebody's listening to this and they think they've got a, they've got a problem with alcohol. I mean, they, they don't have a clinic like base camp local to them. Just reaching out to that organization is, is the best course of action or is I, I'm just, I'm trying to, I want to make sure that I provide the resources for people who, who need it, but they don't have them readily available. Yeah, I will get, what I'll do uh, is I'll provide a link for you so that you can, you know, there's a national registry. Okay, perfect. For uh, and for ASAM, um, you know, Trey, uh, you might find this interesting, but there right now, um, addiction medicine doesn't have its own like board in the way that um, uh, emergency medicine has their board or cardiology has a board. So the specialty of addiction medicine is very young right now. There are residencies, they just are, I'm sorry, uh, fellowships. They just started them this year where they're like, they have an actual board that's like the like the rest of the boards. There's always some sort of thrown together body that like governing body, but it wasn't like this is like an actual, you know, council board. Right. And so um, the first people uh, coming out of that will be in 2021. And um, so, you know, I, I'm hopeful that help is on the way uh, as far as on the, you know, for the medical providers. Um, but uh the resources are, are very limited. I mean, and, um, and so, 
Um, but I, if they're really if they're really struggling, if they call us even at Basecamp, we will do everything we can to make sure that they get somewhere, even if they are not like right in our general region or yeah. that can't uh, come to our facility. If they call us, we will absolutely go out of our way to make sure that we link them with someone in their area or someone that we know that is knowledgeable about addiction so that they can get good quality treatment. Absolutely. That's fantastic. Uh, that's an extremely generous offer. And I will make sure that all of that relevant information is in the show notes. So uh, please yeah. be sure to, to look at that. Um, gentlemen, I, I really, really, really appreciate uh, you spending some time with me today. That's uh, it was enlightening for me, hopefully it's enlightening for, for those who uh, are, are taking time to listen to this. Um, you know, as, as, as I mentioned beforehand, you know, one question I do like to ask all guests, and we, we've talked about a number of books today, is, you know, what, what, what book, if any, and you're, you're certainly welcome to say, you know, that you can't pick out one book, but what book has changed either of your lives? Obviously, Dreamland uh, was a, a, a book that uh, you know, had a strong influence on what you're doing day to day, which is, is, which is incredible. But I'm just curious, you know, if there are any others that uh, you would recommend uh, to, to listeners or, or people you interact with. Yeah, that was a tough question for me, uh, Trey, because I read a lot. I mean, I yeah. read a ton of books. And, you know, you know my, from a personal level, I, you know, if I go back and say, well, what is my, you know, what's the most influential book? I, I'd probably say the book of Proverbs. Okay. And the reason why I say that is because uh, someone, when I was uh, in, uh, a teenager, someone said, hey, there's a there's one proverb for every day of the month. And, you know, so you can just pick it up and read it whatever day it is. And so I would do that over over the course of you know the last 20 years. I've done that so many times. Yeah. That, and I'm kinda, I kind of I've gleaned so much information from it. You know, um, and it, it, it's the Proverbs is the book of wisdom. Right. And so uh, your book that you recommended, the uh, ego is the enemy. You know, he quotes Benjamin Disrael, I think that's how you say his name. And he says, um, he says, uh, uh, see much, study much, suffer much, for this is the path to wisdom, right? Yeah. So I don't know if it's a good pursuit, but uh, because oh, yeah. you're, you're looking for suffering. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so um, that's probably the book that was the most influential in my life. But the book for this I, that I would recommend is another one I listed for you, and it's called Addictive Thinking, Understanding Self-Deception. Okay. And it's written by an author named uh, Torsky. He's a physician uh, that really understands addiction very well. And it's only 112 pages. You can buy it on Amazon. And it, it really, if you really want to understand the mind of an addict and kind of the, the cycles that they get themselves in, I think that does a pretty good job of explaining it. That's wonderful. Thank you. And, and Brian, any books you'd recommend? Um, my most recent like uh, book that has had some influence on my daily life um, has been the, the book uh, Shifting the Monkey by Todd Whitaker. And um, it is the book, uh, it's subtitled The Art of Protecting Good People from Liars, Criers, and Other Slackers. Um, like and it's really, it's really about sort of what we've talked about, um, how not allowing other people to, to dump their problems upon us yeah. and sort of loving and being supportive and compassionate but not taking on problems so that we don't collect them and build this um rock around our own lives right. um I thought it was it was a it was a great read fantastic 
Awesome. Well, both of you, thank you so much. And if people want to reach out specifically, if they feel like they are in need of help, what is the best way to reach either yourselves or the clinic? What just what's the best way to come in contact with you? Um, so they can call directly to our phone, 614-717-0822. And um, if it's after hours, leave us a voicemail. We do get uh, the voicemail sent directly to our email. Um, and if it is business hours, just show up at 815 West Broad Street, uh, downtown in Columbus. Um, we're on the second floor. Awesome. Well, Rob, Brian, thank you both. Truly, uh, this, like I said, it was an enlightening conversation. Um, it, and it, I'm, hopefully it means a lot to people. And so, I, again, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to spend with me today. Thanks, Trey. Yeah, thanks, Trey. Awesome. You guys take care. You right. too. Bye-bye. Yeah, cool. Bye-bye. One last time, I would like to extend a huge thanks to both Rob and Brian for spending time to not only educate me, but help by doing their part to quell some of the stigma surrounding drug addiction and for also, of course, putting the resources together and dedicating their lives to helping those struggling with addiction. If you would like to reach out to either Brian or Rob or get in touch with the Basecamp Recovery Center. I have provided all of the necessary tools and resources and contact information within the show notes. So please be sure to take a look at those. And if you are struggling with addiction or you know somebody who is, please refer them Rob's way. And of course, thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast today. I know how valuable your time is. So the very fact that you chose to spend it with us means the world to me. Thank you again. And if you would like to learn more about the Mosaic Life podcast, you can find it on Facebook. Just search for the Mosaic Life podcast or on Instagram at One Mosaic Life. And last but not least, again, if you wouldn't mind taking a few moments to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, that goes a long, long way in helping the podcast grow. Thank you all again so much. Until next time, take care, do better, and be well. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.